guys, welcome back to the This Without podcast. I'm Nimra and welcome to this week's segment of Crime Overtime. Hello, hello, hello and welcome to the first episode of Crime Overtime where today we will be covering the case of Victoria Kalimbe. So a little background to why we're covering this case. Um, not only is it actually labelled as one of the worst cases of child abuse in British history and resulted in dramatic changes to law, but surprisingly, not many people actually know about this case. I had never heard of it um, until I researched it. And as soon as I knew that I was going to start this podcast, I was adamant that this was a case that I was going to cover. There was like no question about that. I love reading uh, about cases. I've watched a lot of documentaries, shows, videos about many of them. But actually, when I heard about this case, it's kind of the only one that I really remember a lot of details about. Um, and it stuck with me a lot. Now, it is a child case. And I remember in my philosophy and ethics A-level class, my teacher briefly mentioned it. And nobody actually knew what it was um, and who Victoria Columbia was which was really shocking and surprising for me because as I said it is labelled as a really big case within British history and of course every case should be known and heard because they all have their own significance but I think it was just really surprising that nobody had actually heard about this case before. You know you have people know things about the Ted Bundy case, um, James Bolger, and I just thought that this case would also be categorised in that way, but apparently not, at least in my area. Be sure to let me know if any of you knew about this case on Instagram and where you heard about it from. It might just be that from where I'm from, not many people knew about it. Is it within your curriculum, like your content that you need to learn, or is it just something that you kind of know about or have heard about? So be sure to let me know on Instagram. So since this is the first episode, I'll give you a bit of briefing on how this segment is going to work. So I'm just going to cover a case and I might throw in my opinion a bit here and there. I do want to apologise for any mispronunciations and if I leave out some details, I'm going to cover my research and the key events of this case. I'll also try and cite my sources as I speak um, and we'll leave some of them in the episode descriptions. So now that said, let's properly start with this week's segment of Crime Overtime with the case of Victoria Columbia. So Victoria Kalimbe was born on the 2nd of November 1991 in a small African village called Ababo, which is near Abidjan, the former capital of the Ivory Coast. She's a fifth of seven children and is described by her father Francis Kalimbe and her mother Bertha as the, quote, central figure within her family and the entertainer of the family. In October of 1998, so shortly before Victoria's seventh birthday, her great-aunt, 42-year-old Mary Theresa Quow, came to visit the Kalimbe family. A bit of background into Quow. Um, she lived in France, but she was visiting because her brother had recently passed away and the funeral happened in Ivory Coast. While she was here, she visited her nephew, which is Victoria's father. So as she was visiting, she suggested that if the family wanted, she was happy to take one of the seven kids to France for a better education. I'm just going to stop there because I was speaking about this with one of my uni mates and they said that they were really like surprised by the fact that Quao was offering to take one of the kids. I wasn't really surprised. I heard about this kind of thing um, before. So I did a bit of research into it. 
uh, just to see if it was like a common thing or not or whether it was just something that I kind of knew and nobody else did but this kind of thing is very common especially in developing countries and poorer parts of Africa. Moving abroad especially to western countries gives kids better opportunities in life, opens up a lot more doors and the Kalimbe family agreed that this was something that they wanted to take up. This was a good offer to them. Kwao was living in France, it's a western country, she was the one that offered and in one of the documentaries that I was watching, the barrister for Mr and Mrs Kalimbe said that, quote, Kwao was somebody that they knew well. She was the head of the family at the time, she was a French citizen apparently, from their perception, incredibly wealthy. So all of that, all of this combination that you know one of the kids could be going to a western country it was Kwao, it was family it was no stranger somebody that they relied on the Klimbe family thought this was a good idea now an extra detail is that the Klimbe kids weren't actually Kwao's first option Kwao initially planned on taking Anna from another family uh, this was decided the passport was made even saying that Anna was Kwao's daughter so suddenly when Kwao arrived, their parents of Anna changed their mind and said that they didn't want Anna to go. So since Kwao had this passport that claimed that she had a daughter called Anna and it would be suspicious if she suddenly changed her daughter's name, Victoria was now referred to as Anna. Kwao would call her Anna every time that she was introduced to somebody, she would be introduced as Anna. She would go by the name Anna. So Victoria also had to change her appearance. Victoria had short hair, whereas Anna had long hair. So Kwao put in some hair extensions and made her look more like Anna and the photo. Surprisingly, this actually worked. The two of them travelled for Paris in November of 1998 and lived in a flat given to them by the government as they were living off benefits. First of all, I just want to mention how I'm really surprised that it actually worked. I mean, I know this is 1998, um... But it's just a bit weird. I guess the picture wasn't completely clear and they couldn't really distinctly say. Also, I just wanted to explain what living of benefits means uh, in case anybody doesn't know what it is. So benefits are payments from the government to certain people on low incomes or those who meet specific needs. Which, if you remember earlier, how I said that uh, the Kalimbe family thought that Kwao was somebody who was quite wealthy because she came from a wealthy country um, and she gave that perception and told everybody that she was rich. Of course, she wasn't. Uh, she was living off the benefits and now they were given a flat by the government. So that's just important to remember or realise that Mary Teresa isn't actually wealthy. She's living off of benefits, things that are uh, given to her by the government. But the Klimbe family and everybody in Ivory Coast doesn't know that. So moving on, now that they're in Paris, within a month, Victoria's school started to notice that she was absent a lot and they contacted Kwao informing this to them. Kwao responded saying that she was just misbehaving and was a naughty child and nobody actually questioned further. To me, this is a bit concerning because I don't really fully know if this is Kwao saying, oh, she's a naughty child and she's bunking off the school, or if she's saying, Victoria is a naughty child and I'm keeping her at home. 
either way, I don't know why they're not questioning, the school's not questioning it any further because school in France is compulsory at that age. I think it's from the ages of 16, uh, sorry, the ages of 6 to 16 that you, it's compulsory for you to be at school. So I don't really know why they didn't question it. So then on February 1999, four months later, her teachers started to doubt this because she was actually really well behaved when she was in school and they started to think maybe it was a problem at home and they alerted officials. Social workers got involved and Victoria was then labelled as a child of risk from a possible abusive home. Teachers noted that Victoria seemed exhausted and would fall asleep in class with no warning. Now, I didn't think this was as serious as it was until they explained it in the documentary where she literally would just, that one minute she would be paying attention and she would just knock out, like, no warning, no nothing. It wasn't like a gradual tiredness where she was just slowly going to sleep. She would just knock out, go to sleep at, at random moments, which is really concerning for an eight-year-old. By March, teachers noticed that Victoria's head was shaved and she was actually wearing a wig. On the 25th of March, Mary Teresa explained this by saying that Victoria had a bad skin condition on her scalp and they shaved her hair so it was easier to treat and then she wears a wig whenever she goes out. However, interestingly, after this happened, Victoria never actually returned to school. On April the 24th, Mary Theresa and Victoria fled France and moved to London because they were actually evicted from their flat for not paying rent, and Mary Theresa owed the government over £2,000 in falsely claimed benefits. Now in England, they stayed in a bed and breakfast, and after a couple of weeks, they transferred to a hostel in northwest London. They also visited a distant relative called Esther. Esther actually started noticing some off things about Victoria. She noticed that she she was small, frail and weak looking. She didn't think too much of it and then she actually noticed again that Victoria was wearing a wig. She took the wig off and noticed that there were, quote, little blisters on her head. Mary Theresa said that she had hot, a hot water accident. Esther didn't doubt the story and she said that Victoria seemed, quote, quite happy wearing the wig. Mary Theresa tried to get any financial aid and any benefits that she could get, attending over 18 different meetings with the government. It was noted that Victoria accompanied her to at least 10, where people noticed that she looked unkempt. Now, I read this part on Wikipedia where it said that one of the workers said that Victoria looked like a child from an Action Aid advert, which is really concerning that she likens Victoria to that and uses that as, as a way of explaining how she looked. Um, but many of the workers thought that it was Mary Theresa's attempt to, quote, persuade the authorities to hand out money. In case you haven't noticed, there's a bit of a pattern where people were just pushing things to the side, um, which, in their defence, you know, to some extent, not entirely their fault, but you can see that that's becoming a bit of a pattern where people are noticing things about Victoria, but they keep pushing it to the side. Now, Esther, that distant relative, was worried uh, about Victoria and decided to visit the hostel at Nickel Road, North London, in the London borough of Brent, where she said that Victoria looked weak and had lost weight and the accommodation was poor and unsuitable. On the 18th of June 1999, Esther anonymously telephoned Brent Social Services, where she said that, quote, the house wasn't very clean, it was dirty, the room was small and untidy, and Anna didn't look very well. 
On this call, Esther was told that somebody would check it. She even made a second call to check on the progress and was assured that action would be taken. In reality, though, nothing was actually done and her report was lost within the system. In the BBC documentary I watched, Victoria's father said that he, quote, believed here the professional should have done better. By mid-June, Mary Theresa had secured a job at the local Northwick Park Hospital. It was arranged that Victoria would be looked after by a local unregistered child minor, Priscilla Cameron, who Mary Theresa met at her job. Cameron said that Victoria, quote, liked to smile a lot, that she liked to dance a lot, and her father said, quote, if she ever had any time as a child, should have been, it was that time she spent at the Cameron's house. You will have realised that this case actually moves quite quickly, we're about eight months in now from the point where Mary Teresa came into the Kalimbe's family's life. So for her only happiness to come over sh- such a short span of time where she's not even with her family is really upsetting. You know, not many people know what happened in this house uh, with the Camerons. As her father said, it's the only time that she actually spent as a child and she's only eight years old. I think that's what also makes it worse is the fact that her father says that and he notices he he knows that he's all the way on the other side of the globe thinking that his daughter is living a luxury life having a better education making friends living as a child with better opportunities but of course she's not really and she's being thrown around constantly and and this is really the only time that she's been able as he says to live as a child and I think that's really upsetting to think about. Now Cameron actually said that Victoria would change when Mary Teresa would arrive and that they would speak in French and quote it was not a good conversation and she looked agitated. So it just seems like Victoria is in fear of Mary Teresa Nobody really knows much about them. They're kind of these two people that are sort of floating around and nobody knows a lot of detail. But you can pick up that Victoria just seems really scared of Mary Teresa. In the time that Victoria stayed at the Camerons, Priscilla noticed little things wrong with Victoria. She noticed that she had cuts on her fingers and she asked Mary Teresa why an eight-year-old has cuts on her fingers. Mary Teresa said that it was self-inflicted from razor blades. Whether it's a lie or not really concerning as to why an eight-year-old has even access to razor blades and why she would be self-inflicting them. Moving on, at the beginning of July, the two moved into a flat of Mary Teresa's new boyfriend, 26-year-old Carl Manning, a bus driver. Mary Teresa was his first girlfriend and the relationship developed very quickly. So they moved in on the 6th of July 1999 and it was a one-bedroom flat at Somerset Gardens in Tottenham in the London borough of Haringey. Now there is evidence that Victoria's abuse increased soon after moving into Manning's flat. On the 7th of July 1999, so one day after Victoria and Mary Theresa had moved in with Mannings, Brent Social Services sent a letter to the Nickel Road where Mary Theresa and Victoria were staying, informing them of a home visit. On the 14th of July 1999, two social workers, Laurie Hobbs and Monica Bridgman visited the address but found no answer obviously because they had already moved out on the 6th of July. Hobbs and Bridgman made no further inquiries at the property. Inquiries that may have led to a trial on 
Victoria's whereabouts. Prior to the visit, they had not done any background checks and had only the, quote, haziest idea of what they were investigating. That quote was in the documentary that I watched. So within the Lamming report, which was published in 2003 as an inquiry to the Victoria Kalimbe case, suggests that no reports or follow-up notes were made and the only additional information or notes that were written was, quote, not at this address, have moved, full stop. Which of course is not helpful as a referral note at all. Moving back to Manning's flat, it was clear that Manning did not like Victoria and he did not want her around. Uh, So on the 13th of July, Mary Teresa took Victoria to the Cameron's house. This is only a week after they had moved into Manning's flat. Mary Teresa said to the Camerons if they could, quote, keep her. She said how her boyfriend didn't like Victoria and so she asked the Camerons if they could pretty much permanently keep Victoria. In response, the Camerons said that they would keep her for the evening and then tomorrow Mary Teresa would have to collect her and find a suitable place for her to live. Now, the Camerons said that Victoria was wearing a hat when they told her to take it off because she was inside and there was no need for her to wear it. They then saw her injuries. Cameron said that the injuries were fresh and there was actually a loose piece of skin hanging from her right eyelid and a healing burn on her right cheek. Cameron said that it was quote horrifying to see that and out of all of this this girl was smiling. This is one thing that you will hear a lot about Victoria in this case is that despite everything that she went through she was always smiling and so the next day on the 14th of July the Camerons took Victoria to Central Middlesex Hospital. Now this is Victoria's first hospital admission. Victoria was seen by Dr. Rice Bainan. He took Victoria's history and thought that there was a strong possibility that the injuries were non-accidental. His examination was cursory. It's kind of just like an initial examination. It isn't in any detail, but he still picked up the fact that the injuries were probably non-accidental. She was then referred to Dr. Ekandayo AJOB, who was the pediatric registrar. Cameron said that she was quote examined for two hours from head to toe and when they took Victoria's clothes off they saw more injuries and marks. These injuries and marks were cigarette burns all along her thighs. There was a mark across her back and another along her leg. The doctor was quote strongly suspicious that the injuries were non-accidental and she decided to admit Victoria onto the ward. Doctors alerted Brent police and social services and she was placed under police protection with a 72-hour protection order preventing her from leaving the hospital. The next day, one of the doctors, Ruby Schwartz, diagnosed Victoria with scabies and decided that it was the itching that had caused the injuries. She made the diagnosis without speaking to Victoria alone. If you don't know what scabies is, it's an infectious disease that causes rashes on the skin. So because Dr. Ruby Schwartz had made this diagnosis of scabies, her 72-hour police protection was removed and she was released and discharged from hospital after just one night. Despite the fact that the previous two doctors and the examination for two hours identified or said that these injuries were most likely non-accidental and were probably more serious, that was all sort of 
overridden by this doctor's, um, Dr. Ruby Schwartz's diagnosis of scabies. Now, Victoria's second hospital administration came about on the 24th of July, which is only a week later. Victoria was taken by Mary Theresa to the accident and emergency department at North Middlesex Hospital again, with severe scalding to her head and other injuries. Mary Theresa explained that Victoria held her own head under the hot tap to get rid of the itching from the scabies. Now, I just want to note that there are pictures of Victoria and her face being burnt online. It's like one of the first pictures if you search up Victoria Kalimbe. It's one of the first pictures that come up. Now, I don't recommend you searching up these pictures because I did that and it was really upsetting to see. I think it's important to see the state that Victoria was in, but I think it's just sad that it's sort of the first picture that you see. In that picture, though, she is smiling. Her father said in the documentary that, quote, one thing that Mary Teresa could never have taken away from Victoria was that smile. One of the nurses says that she gave Victoria some dressing up clothes while she was at the hospital. She described this pretty little girl twirling down the ward full of happiness and joy and was described as, quote, a little ray of sunshine. Again, this image of Victoria just smiling and being happy and, yeah, I guess living a bit as a child just in this short amount of time but they also noted how she changed on the rare occasions that Mary Theresa visited. The nurses noted that the relationship between the two was more like, quote, master and servant than mother and daughter. And doctors gave a vivid description of one time when Quao was telling off Victoria. Victoria immediately jumped out of bed and stood to attention. She was also so frightened that she actually wet herself. Nurses found a belt buckle mark, burns and this hospital found that there was no evidence of scabies in her inquiry. However, it was still said that there was no sign of child abuse. Now, Michelle Hyde, a child protection officer at Brent Council, received a report notifying her of Victoria's injuries. She planned to open an investigation into the case. However, the next day she heard of Dr. Ruby Schwartz's diagnosis and downgraded Victoria's level of care, trusting Schwartz's judgment. Now that she's been through two hospital admissions, you can see that Victoria has just been failed by the systems one too many times because of the lack of communication and professionals not taking the issue seriously enough. This is not just in terms of the hospitals, but also social services and the councils. There is just clearly a lack of communication and sort of effort as well. If you remember earlier, the referral note saying that they've just moved away and they're not at home and that it then no one sort of tried to figure out where they'd gone or what had happened you know it could have been worse Mary Theresa could have done anything to Victoria and nobody would have really noticed it um the NSPCC learning website this came out after Victoria's case but it says that everyone who works with children has a responsibility for keeping them safe and everyone who comes in contact with children and families has a role to play in sharing information and identifying concerns which these officials the hospitals, the social services, they just didn't. They didn't do this. They came in contact with Victoria multiple times and they didn't share information 
correctly. They didn't fulfil the responsibility of keeping her safe. The part about the 72-hour police protection being removed from her and her just going back into the hands of Mayor Teresa Crowell the next day, that really annoys me. It drives me up the wall. In addition, Section 11 of the Children Act 2004, which came about after the Lord Lamming's report and inquiry into Victoria's death, places a, and I'm reading this off the website, places a statutory duty on certain agencies to cooperate, to safeguard and promote the welfare of children. These agencies include local authorities, NHS services and trusts, police, probation services and young offenders institutions. It's also noted that people who work in these agencies and who do not report suspected cases of abuse or neglect may be subject to disciplinary proceedings but do not actually currently face any criminal penalties. So a disciplinary procedure is a way of an employer deal with an employee's like inappropriate behavior or misconduct so essentially if one of these workers within these agencies are unable to safeguard and report suspected cases of abuse or neglect they can go through a disciplinary process or procedure and i think this kind of includes fines or being sacked and stuff like that but they don't actually face any criminal penalties so actual like sentencing and trials and things so i guess that's a whole debate within itself because of course if you have cases big cases where there is a lot of child neglect and child abuse and you've sort of failed to bring that to light and help that person or that family does that mean you should be sentenced i think that's a whole debate within itself um and i think it is questionable as to why there aren't any sort of at least some form of criminal penalties because disciplinary procedures are just within the company they don't go to trial or anything and aren't sort of seen within the law so i think we can sort of question even if you're being fined you know being sentenced in some way facing some sort of punishment through the eyes of the law that might be better than just a disciplinary procedure but yes that is a whole debate within itself and be sure to let me know do you think that a disciplinary procedure is enough or should it go through trials and should people face criminal penalties? So now moving back onto the case, the ineffective communications between staff, social workers and police meant that Victoria's abuse was ignored and she was discharged on the 6th of August. Now, consultant Mary Rosita, I think that's how you say it, felt Victoria was being abused, but she still wrote in her notes, quote, able to discharge. Later, Rosita said that by writing able to discharge, she did not mean she wanted Victoria to go home, merely that she was physically fit to leave and that she expected social services to follow up on the case, despite another doctor noting that Victoria had signs of neglect, emotional abuse and physical abuse. So this is where I have another issue. Again, this just backs up the idea of ineffective communication because, I mean, even to me, to anybody, I feel like writing able to discharge does just mean that you're saying that they can be discharged because quite literally that's what it translates to you know you're you're saying being able to discharge means that they can be discharged from the hospital but she's saying that she didn't mean that just that she was physically fit 
to go. I guess now that she said it, it does, you can see how it's still, you know, it's sort of one interpretation of that phrase or that statement. But this is the issue. She hasn't told anybody that that's what she thinks. She's not going to sit down with whoever next is going to see Victoria or whoever the next level of people who decide what's going to happen and read these notes. She's not going to sit down and explain that to them because the whole point of these notes is that they just read them and sort of get an idea of what's been said about Victoria. So this can be interpreted in any way. You know, she's interpreted, Rosita's written it to means that she's physically fit to leave. Whereas I think for a lot of people saying being able to discharge means she can actually leave the hospital, you know, actually go home. I, w- I don't know. I wouldn't cast maybe cast this one as lack of communication. I think it's just ineffective communication because it's not clear cut. It's not this means this it's more well this could mean this and that's the issue that when you're within massive institutions or agencies like a hospital where there are loads of patients and doctors are seeing multiple people constantly throughout the day you know that needs to be spot on there's not really sort of an excuse that you can give or or at least a justifiable one your role you have to make sure within the institution that there is a solid form or structure where you can communicate the right thing to somebody to the next person and to the next person and for it to mean the same thing we all abbreviate you know when we write notes at that time it makes sense to us later on it might not make sense if I gave my study notes to somebody I doubt that they'd understand it and I would have to read over it a few times to be able to say oh what was I actually saying here which is fine because it's study notes but not when you're in a hospital and you're dealing with people and you're dealing with in this case neglect cases there's no there can be no margin of error so I think this one was just ineffective communication they need to have an effective way of communicating with each other where there's no sort of gray area and off interpretation so back to the case like i said victoria was discharged on the 6th of august now victoria's dad said in the documentary quote at no time in no way victoria Columbe should have been returned in the hands of mary Teresa quell victoria's case was assigned to harring social services and lisa arthur worry who had been qualified for just 18 months through research i found that this is pretty new for a social worker to only be qualified for 18 months so initially her tasks were to just check everything was okay check everything was all right at home and actually when she went to visit the flat to her it seemed to be a better flat than most places that she had been she noted it was neat and tidy and clean and all of them were present however she never actually spoke to victoria in person after victoria's second visit to the hospital the abuse only increased and victoria became incontinent which means she couldn't control when she urinated and it was random this means that she would often wee on the sofa that she would sleep on remember the flat is a one-bedroom flat so manning's mary Teresa would sleep in the bedroom and victoria was given the sofa mary Teresa and manning's threw out the sofa because it had been soiled for so long now victoria actually had nowhere to sleep instead of buying a new sofa or a mattress or something she was forced to sleep in a bin liner in the unlit unheated bathtub 
in her own excrement. Her hands were tied with masking tape and the bag was tied up around her. They stopped feeding her and when they did, it was on a plastic plate and her hands were tied behind her so she couldn't eat with them. So she was basically having to push her face into the plate like a dog. The previous August, Mary Teresa applied for a council house. In October, Lisa visited to tell Mary Teresa that the application was unsuccessful because the child needed to be at risk in some way. Three days later, on the 28th of October, Mary Teresa calls Lisa, saying that Mannings was sexually abusing Victoria. After hearing this, Lisa told her to come to the office immediately. Upon arrival, social workers saw both Mary Teresa and Victoria with Mannings. Now, remember, Mannings was supposedly abusing, sexually abusing Victoria. I just think it's horrible that Mary Teresa was subjecting an innocent child to sexual assault just to get a council house. Now, after talking with the social workers, they said that they would have to investigate because it's very serious if Mannings is sexually assaulting her. They would have to talk with Victoria. They would have to talk with Mannings. And I think Mary Teresa realised the severity of her claim and accusation. And the next day, she withdrew the accusation. Now, despite the claim, Victoria was to stay with Mary Teresa and Mannings. On the rare occasion that Victoria was allowed out, it was to the church where Mary Teresa told the pastor that demons were inside Victoria. Now, Pascal Arome was the pastor at the mission ensemble Paul Christ. He actually offered prayers for Victoria to cast out the devil and thought that her injuries were due to demonic possession. On another occasion, Mary Teresa took Victoria to a church run by the Universal Church of the Kingdom of God, where the pastor Alvaro Lima suspected that she was being abused, although he took no action. He said in the inquiry that Victoria told him that Satan had told her to burn herself. He didn't believe her, but he still believes that a person could be possessed. He just didn't think that that was what was wrong with Victoria. Social workers did try and visit, but there were no answers and so they concluded that they had moved away and did nothing about it. Because of this, Lisa's manager said, and this is a direct quote, complete appropriate paperwork as an NFA, which means no further action, essentially telling her to close the case. After this, Lisa would ring and text Mary Teresa where she would get no reply. Outside of her work hours, she would try visiting the flat three times between December 1999 and January 2000. She got no answer. She would write letters and would get no answer. She also requested police assistance where nothing significant happened. On the 24th of February, Victoria was at the church where the pastor told Mary Teresa to take Victoria to the hospital because she looked severely unwell and weak. A cab was called and took them to nearby Tottenham Ambulance Station and then to North Middlesex Hospital. Victoria was unconscious and suffering from hypothermia. Her body temperature was actually so low that the hospital couldn't find a thermometer that could read her body temperature. It was found that she had multiple organ failure and malnutrition. She was then transferred to the intensive care at St. Mary Hospital. Unfortunately, Victoria Columbe died on February 25th, 2000 at 3.15pm, aged eight years old and three months. On Wikipedia, it said that the pathologist who examined her body noted 128 separate injuries and scars on her body and described it as the worst case of child abuse she had ever seen. Victoria had been bound, burnt, 
starved and beaten. During her life in Britain, Victoria was known to four local authorities, four social service departments and three housing departments, two child protection police teams, two hospitals, an NSPCC centre and a few local churches. Despite all of this, all of the obvious injuries and signs of neglect and abuse were ignored and nothing was done. Victoria was buried in Grand Bassam near her hometown. Mary Theresa Quow was arrested on the day that Victoria passed away and Manning's the following day at his flat. Quow told police, quote, it is terrible, I've just lost my child. The police said that she was uncooperative trying to to obstruct the police and denies the allegations put on her. Now Mannings, on the other hand, was very honest in his interviews. He spoke about how Victoria had been assaulted by a bike chain, causing injuries to her body and head. He used a shoe and he punched her. He said that that was one thing about Victoria, that you could hit her time and time again and she would just always take it, which is such a soulless and like really cold comment. This is an eight-year-old child and you're justifying beating her up with that statement. Now, the police went to collect evidence at his flat. Now, Manning's actually attempt... It was obvious that Manning's attempted to clean the flat up with bleach. However, the forensics found samples of blood on the walls, the bathroom, the furniture in the living room and the bedroom. In the bin, they found tape pieces that were the bindings used to restrain Victoria. Now, they took a look at the fake passport and they realised that the picture was not the child that was dead. Now, remember, everybody thinks that this is Anna. Her name is Anna. Everybody's been introduced to her in that way. Now, they're seeing this passport and... The picture in this passport, it says Anna in it, which they think is Victoria, but the picture it doesn't match. After weeks of investigation, police found the real Victoria and they called her parents to inform them that she was dead. They then flew over to the UK to identify their child. I think that's just so horrible to think about. You know, these her parents are at home in the Ivory Coast, they get a call from the police in the UK saying, are you Victoria's parents? And then finding out Victoria had died. Probably, I'm I'm not sure how much detail they probably were told over the phone, but over phone to be found, to find out that your child is dead with no warning, you know, so abruptly. And then they have to fly to the UK to then identify their child, that they know no information about how any of this happened. All I'm going to say for that is I just think that Victoria's family, especially her parents, are extremely brave and they deserve so much more than what they've been given. Now, both Mary Theresa and Mannings were charged with child cruelty and murder on the 20th of November 2000 at the Old Bailing. This trial lasted from November to the 12th of January. More detail into the trial, Mary Theresa's defence was that Victoria's condition was due to the fact that she was possessed by demons. It was noted that Mary Theresa also showed no remorse and that she would constantly chuckle and laugh during the trial which is so disturbing. Mary Theresa's defence is very weak. The fact that saying that Victoria was possessed by demons and a really poor attempt, which is, I think, in a way, glad that uh, it was so weak because there's no way you can justify anything that she put that child through. So if anything, it's you kind of feel a bit happy that she's sort of come up with such a, 
or, you know, her defence is so weak. Mannings knew that he wasn't going to get away from this and his defence was that although he injured her, at the time that he did, he didn't intend on causing her real serious bodily harm and definitely didn't intend on killing her. Okay, so this is a bit more logical, although I think anything compared to, you could have said anything and Mary Theresa's defence was, I just find it funny that she's used that as a defence. I'm not trying to underpin the fact that she believes in demon possession because there are many people that do. I just think it's like really ridiculous that she's used that as a defence. Like how do you even pick up evidence for that? How do you even attempt that? Especially since that sort of, this idea of possession by demons came in really late during the case. It was through the pastors and and the church. The first two admissions and the, the distant relative Esther and the ghoul at France, that was never identified there. She never mentioned any of it, neither had Victoria. So I just think that it's just ridiculous how she thought she was going to get away with that. In terms of Mannings, so he's saying that he he did assault her, he did abuse her, but he didn't intend on causing her death, which is more logical, it makes more sense, you know, it's, it's, it's more probable. Although you are beating up an eight-year-old. I don't see how you can try and claim that you didn't intend on causing her serious bodily harm. Forget her death for a second. How can you not intend on causing her serious bodily harm when you're beating her up every single day? Using a bite chain to beat her up is just horrific. So Quow denied all charges, whereas Mannings pleaded guilty to the charges of cruelty and manslaughter. The jury took four days to convict them both on a guilty verdict and sentenced both of them to life imprisonment for the murder of Victoria Columbe. The judge said to them, quote, what Victoria endured was truly unimaginable. She died at both your hands, a lonely, drawn-out death. Quow was sent to Durham Prison and Mannings went to Wakefield Prison. So in terms of the aftermath of the trial, so this trial led to a lot of unanswered questions, rightly so, as to how this was even allowed to happen. We've spoken a lot about how the ineffective communications, how there were loads of referrals and nothing was identified and nothing was done. Because of this, the government set up a public inquiry surrounding Victoria's death in 2003. And as we said before, the Lord Lamming's report was published on the 28th of January 2003. Now, Mary Theresa didn't send in evidence and she was still very uncooperative. Mannings did, however. He again said how um, he would hit her and she wouldn't cry or show any signs that she was hurt. Because Mary Theresa didn't send in any evidence, she had to be brought from prison to give evidence, where she didn't answer the questions and she would be constantly shouting, she wouldn't sit down, which is like, despite everything that you've done, you still act this way, you know, not sending in the evidence, uncooperative, shouting, not answering the questions, essentially victimising yourself after you've just done this. She actually then tried to blame Victoria's parents saying that they weren't legally married in a church which is just so irrelevant to the case but she knew she knew it was going to be a hurtful comment for her parents to hear and so that's why she said it which is just like after everything you've put these two through you just continuously finding ways to reopen a wound that you've created it's horrible. So actually, social worker Lisa received most of the media criticism. Now, I want to hear your opinions about this because I 
I have mixed opinions about this. Of course, there is that lack of communication, but I don't really blame her that much. I don't think it was really her fault. She tried. She's tried multiple times. After her manager told her to close the case, she would continuously go to the flat, which is also, if you think about it, it's really sad to think that I heard it in the documentary, but I think I forgot to mention it earlier. The fact that those times that Lisa would go and knock on the door and would get no response, Victoria was probably behind there tied up in this bin bag, in this bathtub, probably freezing in her own excrement, starving, was completely helpless, couldn't do anything. We don't even know if she heard it. We don't know anything. But just that idea that she was there and is so close to finding help, but was just restricted in so many ways that she couldn't do anything for herself. Moving on back to Lisa, I don't think it's entirely her fault. Again, she's very newly qualified. It's a new case. It's a big case, which we can't use that as an excuse, but I think she didn't get the support that she needed. It almost feels like other people were sort of forcing her to sweep it under the rug and hide it, rather than giving her the support that she needed to actually find out what was wrong and given the support. I think she was just left to do it all by herself and didn't know how to do anything. But that's just my opinion. I'd love to know what you guys think. I think we can't forget, of course, that the central blame is always Manning's and, of course, Mary Theresa Crowell. They actually put this child through that and actually did the assault and the abuse and all of that. And so we can't take the blame away from them. What they're trying to do now is to try to figure out where the systems and the institutions went wrong because, of course, this was happening and there were so many chances that Victoria could have been saved. So it's more so about how they could have prevented her death because there were so many times that they could have interfered and stopped this abuse sooner, which would then obviously would have stopped her her death. Um, I read in this document called Keeping Children Safe, the government's response to the Victoria Kalimbe Inquiry Report and Joint Chief Inspector's Report Safeguarding Children. Very long title. I will leave a link to this in the episode description and it goes into a lot of detail away from the case and generally on the safeguarding of children. Now on page five for the Victoria Columbia Inquiry report it showed that the systems failed comprehensively because of ill-trained and overworked staff who were unsupported by their managers or more senior staff in their organisations and because of senior staff failing to take responsibility for the quality of children's services in the organisation. I think that pretty much sums up my reasons to why I don't entirely blame Lisa. I just think that she didn't have the support by her managers to actually teach her how to do things and they just failed to take responsibility themselves. Inquiry lasted over a year and it was found that over 160 witnesses knew or could sense there was something wrong with Victoria. It was clear that Victoria was let down by those interested with her well-being. The report said that there were at least 12 occasions where agencies had the chance to intervene and save her and they just simply missed it. Now, I think that it's a failure of the whole like system rather than one individual. These occasions where they could have stopped and recognised what was going on with Victoria was not necessarily one person. It was institutions and the systems within these institutions that failed. Of course, there were parts in terms of the Lisa situation where the managers weren't giving her the proper support. But I think more so within the hospitals and the social services, again, it was more the systems within the institutions that 
was at fault. People just weren't able to necessarily recognise what was going on because they just didn't have the information or the right clear-cut information telling them what was going on with Victoria. Now, thankfully, changes have been brought about through legislation and new guidance has been provided, which is now used in social worker departments throughout the UK. Victoria's case led to the formation of Every Child Matters and the Children Act 2004. These changes include creating an integrated children's computer system to ensure that information is more routinely and robustly collected and a common assessment framework was created so that professionals within health, education and the police could instigate better support for families that can't reach child protection thresholds. So there have been a lot of changes, a lot of good changes that have been able to help a lot of other children and cases as such. There are loads of helplines now, we've got the NSPCC, There are also therapy services. Um, One of the ones that I know that operate in the UK called The Next Place. They provide a lot of services and support, including adoption, foster care, depression and anxiety, trauma. Also, they help with older children adjustment. So since Victoria's case, a lot of good has come from it with more awareness and accessible services to those who need it. That is all for this episode of Crime Overtime. Be sure to follow this show on Instagram and DM me some of your general opinions on this case. We can have many discussions about it. Leave some cases that you want me to cover in the future and I promise I will get back to you. Next episode will be a Drama Zone episode. More details on that will be on Instagram as a post. And I hope to see you guys soon for either this segment or another. Thank you for listening to the This or That podcast. And until next time, bye. Bye.